For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, welcome to Hertel, Andrew Johnson. Thank you so much for joining us. The most precious thing you have, your time, as we try to do what we always do, turn down the noise of the news cycle, get the information you need, discern the times that we live in. Let's start overseas. India, really important story, some big stuff going on over there in India. Why I care about India? Well, as we've been covering on the show, it may have already happened, but sometime in the near future, if it has not already happened, India will be the most populous country on earth is also the world's largest democracy and that's what makes this story so important there was some disturbing reports coming out of some colleges and universities over there of where this bbc documentary on prime minister modi is being viewed or was trying to be viewed and they've done everything from cutting the power to arresting people to try to keep this from being shown now, this is a bbc produced documentary so british documentary india yeah there's a lot of back history there we're not going to go into right now but you can see where this starts getting touchy this all revolves around this documentary now what was the documentary let's go to time magazine to explain what's going on with this documentary we will link to the full piece but last tuesday the british broadcasting company bbc released the first episode of The Modi Question, a two-part documentary series that tracks how Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi climbed the political ranks of the ruling, I can't pronounce this word, I apologize, party during his time as Chief Minister of the State of Gujarat. The documentary was originally broadcast in the UK, but it quickly generated hype in India after unauthorized video clips began circulating on social media platforms, reminding viewers of Modi's controversial role in the 20. 2002 riots and prompting the Indian government this week to block it from being aired on Indian platforms. The 59-minute documentary takes an in-depth look at the 2002 riots, one of the worst outbreaks of religious violence in India since the country's independence in 1947. It traces how the riots erupted after a train carrying Hindu pilgrims in the northeast state of Jurat was set on fire and killed 59 people. The Muslim community was allegedly held responsible for the incident leading to heightened retaliatory attacks and the further deaths of over a thousand people, the majority of whom were Muslim. The riots took place under Modi's watch, who at the time was the chief minister for that area. 
Raw and chilling footage of the documentary reveals how the police stood by as Hindu mobs attacked Muslims and religious attacks took hold on the state. In India and abroad, the questions about Modi's complicity in abetting the violence has generated controversy for over a decade, but the BBC documentary goes a step further. Highlighting his role through expert commentary reveals a previously unpublished report in the British Foreign Office that held Modi directly responsible, that's a quote, for, quote, climate of impurity, end quote, that enabled the violence and said it had all the hallmarks of an ethnic cleansing. The BBC also uncovers memos from British government and Western diplomats, including the former British Foreign Secretary Jack Straw, who unequivocally criticized Modi's conduct at the time. However, the documentary also features interviews with former BJP politicians who supported Modi and strongly denied his involvement in the riots. They cite the Indian the Indian Supreme Court verdict in 2013, which stated there was insufficient evidence to prosecute him. But the question is, can the government block the documentary from airing? Under emergency powers, again, this is Time Magazine, granted by the country's information and technology law, the Indian government has already issued orders to YouTube and Twitter demanding that they block any content related to the documentary from being published on their platform. Uh, Kachin Gupta, a senior advisor to the Indian government, announced the news on Twitter on Saturday calling the documentary, quote, vile propaganda, end quote, which, quote, undermined the sovereignty and integrity of India and had the potential to, quote, adversely impact India's friendly relations with foreign countries. The decision was backed by various Indian ministries, including the Ministry of External Affairs, which found the documentary pushed a discredited narrative cast, quote, aspersions on the authority and credibility of the Supreme Court and created, this is another quote, diversion among Indian communities. So far, YouTube and Twitter are complying with the Indian government's orders. Over 50 tweets containing links to the documentary have been taken down, according to a database. They include tweets by Derek O'Brien, a member of the Indian parliament, as well as Supreme Court advocate Prashta Bhushan and American actor and political activist John Cusack. Media organizations, and digital rights activists have long criticized the laws that enable the Indian government to censor social media content. The laws have been challenged in the Supreme Court as well as multiple high courts with proceedings underway. The block will likely appease Modi's ardent base of supporters who have decried the documentaries in the BBC as colonial and white propaganda. Quote, the bias and lack of objectivity and frankly continuing colonial mindset are blatantly visible. Uh, Aramdin Bakshi Spokesperson for Foreign Affairs Ministry told reporters at a press conference. But according to Roth of Human Rights Watch, the principal victims of Mahdi censorship are Indian citizens, therefore minimalizing valid concerns raised about Mahdi in the documentary as colonial partisanship, quote, stinks, shrinks responsibility for his own intolerance of legitimate criticism. This is compounded by the fact that banning a documentary that was not otherwise popular in India has only invited more viewers said Harashti Singh Bile, a political editor of Indian magazine The Caravan, who also appears in the documentary as a commentator. Quote, frankly, the ban has been pretty stupid because it attracted far more attention to the documentary than if it had otherwise been possible, says Bile. He adds that it's now being screened across school campuses as, quote, an act of resistance among teenagers who previously viewed these events as a dated chapter in history. In some senses, this is a quote, created far more awareness than the government could have expected, added Bao, noting that it has brought new relevance to the conflict. With the events of 2002 catapulted Mahdi to his current position 
Baal says the prime minister remains extremely sensitive about his international reputation and still wants to be viewed as a statesman. But clamping down on this documentary in what Baal has called a, quote, ham-handed fashion will only confirm the expectations of his fiercest critics. This came out in Time magazine. This is a BBC documentary, okay? This isn't some nut job in a closet. This is pretty legitimate stuff. Now, the documentary itself aired both sides of this. Now, let's not even pretend like we know all the ins and outs of Indian politics. I don't. We've reached out. We're going to try to have some guests on the show who do know the ins and outs of all this stuff. But when we don't understand something fully and something like this is going to happen, let's go back to some of our core principles and rules, right? Whenever you have a government that does not want to have transparency and accountability for something and gets scared over a documentary and reacts this strongly to it, whatever the truth or untruth that might be in it, they're telling you something. They do not want openness and transparency. Now, India is a very complicated country with a very complicated history. The Hindu-Muslim issues are very real and can be very violent on a moment's notice. There's a lot of complexities here that we don't understand, and I'm just going to start with saying we don't understand all of it. But anytime you go to censorship, anytime you go to bans, exactly what happens is going to happen. More people are going to want to know why you're banning it, and it makes you look bad. These are difficult, complicated issues, but it's something we got to keep an eye on here in the States. So when the largest democracy in the world is having issues with this and it starts affecting our social media here, you're darn right we better pay attention to it. It all goes together. You can crow on your social media about globalists all you want to, but you're part of the globe, folks. Better pay attention. All this stuff's interconnected now, and you best pay attention to it. Otherwise, you may get sucked up in bad news narratives and wonder what happened because something that happened over there had an effect here. That's why we try to spend some time overseas with things and not just get myopic about being Americans. It's an American habit. We're going to try to break it. More Hertel right after this. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, when we got to talk environmental stuff, this is one of our go-tos. Ethan Brown, you have heard his advertisement for his excellent Sweaty Penguin program. Yes, that's Sweaty Penguin. It's a great name. It's a great program. Uses a lot of humor. You've heard that advertised right here on Herd Tell, but we got the man himself today. Talk a little environmental news and headlines. Ethan, how are you, sir? Great to have you back on Herd Tell. I'm good. Thanks for having me. Uh, we have these people. Look, everybody has a right to protest, especially in America. How you protest, though, is open to interpretation. And once you start doing certain things, you're no longer protesting, you're breaking the law. Over in the UK, uh, these Extinction Rebellion knuckleheads, uh, this is not how to protest, neither to get people to enjoy your cause or to get your message out or anything else. Here's why I think that's a bad method, because you're screwing with the normies. 
the normies that don't follow this stuff, don't interrupt their daily life. Don't make them late for work. Don't do, that. That's never going to get your message across. That just ticks people off. You were writing about it. You wrote about it in PBS Peril and Promise here, though. I think even they are starting to realize, especially if they want the fundraising to continue, they're going to have to change course here. And it looks like they might actually be listening to a message for a change. Yeah, they've uh, been famous for climbing oil tankers, gluing themselves to paintings. They even tweeted that I was trying to delay meaningful climate action after I wrote a column saying that Don't Look Up was a stupid movie. And I, yeah, that's not going to win you much support. And they, at the end of 2022, posted a piece on their website titled We Quit. I'll it up for a second they said as we bring in the new year we make a controversial resolution to temporarily shift away from public disruption as a primary tactic uh, they're going to be putting relationships over roadblocks and yeah that's that's a good thing i guess we'll see if they follow through on that but i wrote this piece to kind of say hey if you're really faithful to this i think it could be good for you let's be adults here they're not doing this because they want to stop doing the publicity stuff. They're getting to a place where they have to because it's putting them in an untenable position to continue it because people are fed up with it. I'm assuming probably whoever's funding this is probably having an issue with it. That's usually how these decisions really get made. And let's be honest, somebody's putting a lot of money behind this because they're getting access to places. They're well-funded. They have matching t-shirts. Somebody's paying for all this. Some combination of those factors is what's driving this. It's not altruism, is it? I have no idea. I think <laughs> um, it, it could be any of those things. I would imagine just me personally speaking that if you can have the impact you desire on the environmental movement without getting yourself arrested all the time, that that would be a good thing. And certainly that's the path I've chosen to take. But yeah, it, it could be any number of reasons, but certainly they have to be seeing that this strategy of causing this much public disruption is only driving people away yeah so now i can already hear it is like okay the two white guys that are nicely dressed and comfortably sitting in their homes are complaining about the protesters fair enough here's here's where i draw some lines i'm not a huge fan of the going and chaining yourself to the tree on the piece of property that's going to be developed but I can logically get my head around that one, right? You're you're physically stopping. You're putting a little skin in the game. You're dealing with the developers and the construction crew. I at least logically understand that one, right? I don't like the climbing the tower or climbing the tree. You know, I don't like it. I understand it. To me, that still falls under the realm of protest, even though if you're trespassing those sorts of things, you start pushing the boundaries of breaking law. And once you're breaking the law, you're no longer protesting. I get, I can understand that. When you're just harassing average people who you have no idea what they believe that's where it's a big drawn red line with me of okay now you're just being a jackass now you're just harassed these aren't people that are directly involved at least protest a company a development a political figure you know focus your attention if you're just disrupting cities full of people that's not only you know not helpful to your cause that's its own kind of bad because now you're just messing with people's lives and livelihoods that may not have anything to do with what you're upset about. Yeah, maybe I should have started from here. I fully respect people's right to protest, right to free speech. I think it's very admirable, honestly, that someone's willing to put their body on the line for a cause they believe in. I think in this particular case, for example, 
we saw in 2022 uh, some of the Extinction Rebellion folks, it was largely a group called Just Stop Oil, which is over in the UK, that were doing a lot with famous paintings, gluing themselves to them, throwing soup at them. You saw headlines like this every week throughout the fall. And that's where it's a little strange to me because the paintings have literally nothing to do with climate. And the only way people even find out it had to do with climate is if they read past the headline. And what a lot of the activists were saying, so I did try to listen to them and understand why they were trying to do this. They felt that people were just so unaware of the climate crisis that they had to do something that drastic. They would make it akin to people were sleepwalking and we have to wake them up. And I just don't think that's true. I think people are aware. I think there is a lot of progress going on. Obviously, we need to do more. There's a lot more that can be done that can be beneficial. But it just didn't square to me to have that visceral reaction to the state of uh, what's going on right now. Yeah, Ethan Brown joining us, host of The Sweaty Penguin. He also works through PBS. We're going to link to all his stuff. Here's where I think some elements of the environmental movement have really got a problem on their hands. They've got two things happening at once. One is they're getting more and more on social media, which people see more and more of what they're doing. And if you're doing this extreme stuff, people don't like it. So you're almost self-telegraphing yourself into a corner of being irrelevant or pushed off as a crank. The other problem they got is that same technology is also informing people of what's going on in the environment. This isn't the 70s. This isn't the 50s where you just get a newsreel of a nuclear blast and everybody freaks out. People understand that, yes, even if you think there's major environmental problems going on in the world, and there are, there's also great progress being made. I think the extremism is getting so far off base of the actual reporting of what's going on. I think the doomsayers, I'm just talking about the people that are constantly you know, going Al Gore of we're 10 years from destruction, which he said 14 and a half years ago, that kind of stuff just turns people off. But technology just reveals it. It's like the old, you know, televangelist declaring the world's going to end after the world ends. Nobody wants to pay attention to you. I think that's just an inherent problem with the extremism of it. And a lot of folks, especially the ones that actually care, are trying to veer away from it. Is that a good way to read what's going on right now, big picture wise? Yeah, I think I saw you tweeted about the um, 90 seconds to midnight doomsday clock or whatever. And I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? I I don't know where that number comes from. I, I haven't researched it that much uh, in all fairness, but the idea that we're all going extinct on Thursday is just ridiculous. And I've talked about this before. I think this is where some of the more extreme environmental folks and I very starkly differ is Yes, climate change is a big problem, and we are seeing a lot of extreme weather events and natural disasters that are being fueled by climate change around the world that are causing deaths, that are causing injuries and people's homes being lost and money lost and all these different things. But these are isolated events that 
taken together are cause for concern. There's not one, it's not like Don't Look Up where you have a comet that's going to hit the earth and just kill everyone all at once. And I think there's a lot of nuance to this. Furthermore, if we go back in history and we look at any cases of people kind of degrading their environment and it, it's just never led to extinction. Populations can collapse, but they someone always finds a way to hold up and live on. So just the name Extinction Rebellion, I've always wondered, like, if you're talking about biodiversity, sure, there's an extinction crisis. If you're talking humans, we're just not on that trajectory. So I don't know. I think um, there's definitely room to be concerned, but also a lot of room to be optimistic, because like you say, we are making progress in many areas. Yeah, Ethan Brown. Let's take the other. Look, there's two sides to the extremism here. Let's take the other side, the folks that just think any kind of environmental concern whatsoever, or any kind of climate concern whatsoever. Oh, it's a big hoax. Oh, it's all a religion. Yes, there's elements of that. Part of the problem here is we can't have a dialogue about it because each extreme only acknowledges that the other extreme exists and then forgets there's this big spectrum of people in the middle. This is why you take the approach you do. You use humor, you use logic, you try to talk about it in practical terms. I think what needs to be happening here is a lot less the big picture, the world's going to end stuff. Give people bite-sized stuff they can handle. Clear-cut logging, they can understand that one. Strip coal mining, they can understand that one. Both of those are from, you look, I the property right next to ours got clear-cut logging, has been vacant for 25 years. Eats me up every time I go home. Practical stuff like that. People want clean drinking water. People don't want smog. Why can't we just focus on those practical things? And I know the answer is the extremes make more money, but there's a lot of people that want to talk about those issues, but can't because you got the two ramparts throwing bullets at each other, right? Yeah, my dad told me about a year ago, if the extremists are pissed off at you, you're the rational person in the room and you're doing something right. And I have really held to that since he said that to me. I think you're right. There's kind of been this labeling of the climate deniers on this side, the climate doomers on that side. And to me, it's so much more of a fluid spectrum. And I think there's a large middle that most of us are in where um, maybe our levels of passion might be different, but we all understand there is an issue going on. We're not all going extinct, but we do have to do something about this. And furthermore, you're right. Everyone wants clean air, clean water, and a healthy environment. That is not controversial. How we get there, there's room for debate, but that premise is very easy to wrap our heads around. Furthermore, when we get into how climate and pollution and biodiversity loss can affect our economy, we'll see that there are monetary losses due to these issues, and I think everyone wants a healthy economy. So I do think there's a lot of room for common ground here. I guess that's what. I'm trying to figure out in my career is how do I cut through all that and get a rational voice heard. And I hope at least through my podcast, obviously I've tried to add a comedic element. I think especially a lot of young people are uh, responding to comedy and will tune into something because it's funny and then they'll kind of get the information. I also think emphasizing solutions, just doing so much critical thinking and nuance. All of these are ways that can get people engaged and get people feeling less overwhelmed. But it's certainly a challenge when you don't get all the clickbaity headlines. Yeah. Ethan Brown joining us. I feel like I ask you this every time you're on, but I'm going to ask you again, cause I'm just going to keep hammering it because I think people need to hear it. We don't do enough talking about how far we've come in environmental progress. 
you know, the Cuyahoga River in Cleveland hasn't caught on fire anytime recently. I rem- I can drive by the alloy plant, the big steel mill that my grandfather worked on. And, and I know people that work there and they tell me, they're like, oh no, if you see anything being admitted from the plant, that means something went wrong. Everything out of there should be clean paper. And I can show you pictures in my lifetime where you can't see down that valley. How do we talk about that kind of stuff? It seems to me the best way to combat doomsaying and denialism and the two extremes is just get some practical stuff. Just get some pictures of the cars in the 70s and the gas crisis and be like, just look at this. Things are better now. But we don't want to talk about the good things. Yeah, things have improved so much. In the United States, emissions have been falling since 2005. I think they've fallen around 20% since then. Globally, uh, when the in 2015, the Paris Agreement was signed, the world was on track to warm by like 4 degrees Celsius. Now we're on track to warm by about 2.6 degrees Celsius. That's still not where we want to end up, but it's a whole lot better than 4. We've fended off a lot of the kind of climate tipping points by getting from four to 2.6. And hopefully we can bring that number down even further. So you're right, there's a lot of progress. And that's just big picture. If we go locally, you can go to so many different communities and see, uh, like you said, the rivers being cleaned up. There were just uh, last week, I think dolphins were spotted in a river in the Bronx for the first time in years because pollution had been cleaned up in that river. So, so much exciting stuff going on. And I think that keeps me energized working in climate. And I hope people can recognize that and use that as motivation to continue making progress. Yeah, Ethan Brown, I appreciate your take on this. Look, environments like a lot of other things like education, like politics, like policy, like the economy, we don't have to agree on every little in and out of it. I think that's part of the problem. Number one is everybody's like, oh, well, we have to agree on everything or you're my enemy. No, no, no. We can get to 80 or 90 percent on a lot of this stuff just on common sense. And I think you try to do that. So until we get you back on the program again, let folks know where they can find you, what you got going on. The Sweaty Penguin is advertised right here on Hertel. Let folks know about that because it's better when you say it than when I say it. And let folks know how to keep up with you until we get you back on the program. Yeah, thanks again for having me, Andrew. The Sweaty Penguin is a comedy climate podcast where we are making climate change less overwhelming, less politicized, and more fun. We are presented by PBS's National Climate Initiative, Peril and Promise, which is also where you can find the column on the Extinction Rebellion that I just wrote. And you can also find us anywhere you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, etc. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the sweaty penguin. I just had a meeting with one of my producers this morning. We've got some cool Patreon stuff in the works. So do go check that out and support our work. Yep, you do good work. You'll continue to be a regular. Ethan Brown, appreciate you, my friend. Thanks. Thank you, sir. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, 
all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutan. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcast or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. Ah, welcome back to Her Tell. Okay, excited about this one. Been wanting to talk to her for a while. We keep crossing paths on lines and then different things. Never actually got to talk to each other. That's the beauty of the medium. Ashley Barker's with us. She's from public policy. Does that for the Committee for Justice, a bunch of other things, federal society. She also does antitrust, but we're going to talk some lawyer in today, Supreme Court stuff. Ashley, how are you? Great to finally have you on the program, man. Great. Thank you for having me. Uh, thrilled to have you. Okay, we have the inevitable headline that we've kind of been waiting on. It was a matter of when. The leaker of the Dobbs decision, the Supreme Court came out with their statement. Dare I say it was a very lawyery statement. Uh, the bullet point on it was, and I'm quoting here, uh, they could not find to the preponderance of evidence who leaked it. That caught my attention. I don't think this is a case where they don't know who it is. I think this is a case where they either can't prove it or don't want to reveal it. How did that statement come across to you as somebody that really follows this really closely? Sure. Thanks. So I, I think you're you're correct, Jay. First of all, it is very long overdue. It's been over, I think, nine months now since it's May 4th or 5th when it was when the draft opinion was originally leaked. And, and you make a good point too about the preponderance of the evidence. So of course that you know you, you mentioned it as sounding lawyerly, and it's not as if such a statement um, needed to have a preponderance of the evidence standard versus you know a reasonable doubt sort of standard. Um, and, and I think you're correct too. And and that was my reading of it um, at at on first impression is that they do have, you know, a suspect or a small number of people that they suspected it, but they lack the actual evidence linking it specifically to that person, whether that be, you know, a digital footprint or, or fingerprint or whatever that sort of evidence is. Um, they don't have enough to definitively say we have a piece of evidence that implicates this person. Um, but, you know, the fact that they set a preponderance of evidence, it does mean that they, um, you know, weren't looking for, it would be different if it were like, well, we couldn't prove beyond a reasonable doubt. We're not 100% certain. There could be some doubt. Um, no, it, it's just that they were missing a key 
um, piece of evidence. And that could be because of, you know, the IT systems at the court, um, probably not surprising that they're stuck, you know, back a few centuries ago in terms of their systems and protocols and other things. So it seems that they were inconclusive in their findings, which was really disappointing from my perspective. Ashley Baker joining us. It's funny when you actually read through the report here, ju not just what the marshal said, um, but they also brought in an outside uh, report as well. <laughs> it's funny here, uh, the Chertoff group, of course, Michael Chertoff, familiar name in, in Homeland mm -hmm. Security circles. It's funny here, you mentioned the technology and the digital footprint. It almost seems like what they couldn't handle here is though, is in their interviews and they didn't get interview everybody here. That's important to note here. They talk about things like what we would used to call pillow talk, like, well, they talked to their spouse. Did they mention it? A couple of people admitted they mentioned it in that way. It's not just technology. This is just kind of a human nature thing you're fighting here, isn't it? Which is somewhat something the law has been dealing with since we first started having law, right? I, yes, I, I agree. It's... Well, one hand, yes, it is something that we've, we've been dealing with, um, human nature, and it seems that it was probably a printed copy that was shared one way or the other. But also, I don't think we've dealt with this level of activism that we have today um, and other cases as well. It's just that, you know, the, the types of students who are coming out of places like Yale today are the types who would see it as, you know, this is being something that's permissible, something that they should do. And that just was completely out of the question beforehand, I think. Yeah, Ashley Baker joining us. Let's back up then because it's important to keep the perspective here. We haven't had a leak like this in modern times with modern technology. There's some stuff back in the early days of the court. Look, the Supreme Court has some dirty laundry like every other government organization. If you go back, especially in the early days, there's some real questionable characters uh, <laughs> involved. But this is new in the modern time. I think it shocked people. Walk through people through it just real slowly, though. This is a court that's still trying to figure out the technological. A Look, we just got recordings of live court hearings because of COVID stuff. That's almost like the dam breaking in a lot of ways. The court is very slow to adapt to the public. That's the environment this all happened in. And that's why this came as such a shock when we had this breach of protocol. I think so. Uh, you're correct that the courts adapt slow to adapt to the public with with COVID, but in some ways they've been good, such as oral argument for, format, for example, I think has actually become a little bit better as a um, result of the pandemic. And it's great to be able to listen to that in real time online. So that's one thing that they did well. The other thing, you know, it, it's not surprising that so the Supreme Court barely had a functioning website during part of the month of June until about five years ago. It was like every June, the Supreme Court website on opinion day would crash once or twice. Um, and everyone would go find the opinions on SCOTUS blog. It's, um, it's, bad enough that you know once essentially the pr arm of a boutique law firm became the go-to source for supreme court opinions for many years which is absurd if you think about it because you should be able to just go to the government website and find that document um in terms of you know the sharing of documents being able to take them home that process working differently work at home um aspect of it yes whether or not different protocols and those which I, I think the recommendations in the report are solid whether or not that would have actually stopped this from happening it's really hard to say i mean it could be you know someone could leave a printed copy in you know a cafeteria in the metro like they could leave it at home and their roommate or their um spouse or whatever could see it um so it's not completely foolproof um which is why i think it's also important that there are consequences for this sort of action yeah ashley baker Let's talk about that for just a second, though, because we just walked through it a little bit. The Supreme Court, when it's these court cases, I think and I would hope, look, I've, I've become real big since I started doing editing and writing and stuff is get to the source documents, right? 
Mm -hmm. This stuff mm -hmm. is not as intimidating to read as I think people think it is. Dobbs may be the first time people really actually tried to look up and read a decision themselves. For just the average person that's not a lawyer, but they just want to keep up with, look, the, the Supreme Court is so entwined now, especially with, you know, kind of the breakdown in the legislative system. If there's a theme of the Roberts courts, it's Congress needs to fix this. We shouldn't fix this. There's a lot of back and forth here for the average person who keeps seeing the Supreme Court pop up. How should they go about reading these, getting the source documents? I know you mentioned the SCOTUS blog. It's a great website. I use it all the time myself. But you can just get the straight PDFs for this stuff. You can find the source doc. You don't have to take a talking head's word for it on either side because both want to spin this to their own ways. How do they go about actually getting this information? Because I think this is one of those things we could self-educate ourselves and get through a lot of this mess in a hurry. I think so. But I think a lot of people, too, even when the link is provided, want the you know short, quick, regurgitated version. And some people want the version of it that aligns with their beliefs. So there, there's always going to be an element of some people not reading you know the source documents I mean, and, and working in other areas. And let's say antitrust, for example, there are plenty of people who do not read um, the cases or not read the thing that they're responding to. But that said, I mean, for those who are inclined to do so, one thing that I would suggest is either SCOTUS blog. Um, it's a great suggestion. They always um, print a link to the document. Also, the Supreme Court website, like I said, which is now um, easier to access and easier to navigate um, on the page than it used to be. And also following reporters on Twitter who consistently own opinion days, particularly in June when all the opinions come out very quickly at once, who provide links to the documents. Um, like find those reporters and um, and follow them. Yeah, Ashley Baker. Okay, talking about following stuff. Anytime we have a huge story like this leak, it puts my radar up on because like, well, wait a minute, the Supreme Court's working right now. They're going through things right mm -hmm. now and everybody's talking about this. What are we missing that the court's doing right now? Because we don't have the big ticket like a Dobbs going right now, but we got some really important cases working through the court right now. We also have some things that they're going to review. What's going on that's missing in these headlines and the rush of the coverage of the Dobbs leaker? Well, kind of going back to jobs specifically and, and the harm that the leak does is it is it's to that process. It's to the deliberative process after you know, this draft was actually it, the date sample was February 10th or so, I believe it was um, early to mid February and it was leaked in May. And during that that time is you know used to deliberate with the other with the other justices for other justices, right, dissenting opinions, concurring opinions, dissenting in parts, that sort of thing. So what's really being impeded is that process, which does require cooperation across chambers. And I think a lot of um, trust and ability for clerks to work with one another has been eroded. I don't think this necessarily means that justices won't trust their own clerks. I don't think that the trust that's eroded is like vertical, so to speak. I think it's between um, between the, the different chambers um, of, of the court. Um, and, and as of what's going on right now, I mean, it's most of the opinions come out in June. Um, oral arguments have been heard in quite a few cases. We have quite a few to go. And there's kind of this rush um, to get out opinions towards the um, end of the Supreme Court term, which usually ends at the very end of June. They'll extend it by a week or so. Um, and that's when most of the opinions of the court come out, especially the um, more complex opinions that take the justices a bit more time to um, get through and to write various concurring and dissenting opinions.
Yeah, Ashley yeah. Baker joining us. For folks that aren't familiar, though, let's just make sure we don't skip over this too far. That The Dobbs leak, it actually had first draft stamped on it. Like, you could read the stamp on the copy that got out. Talk about that process a little bit. You're talking about cross chambers. The justices don't just write an opinion and submit it, and they, it's not like turning in a work at school, right? They write it, but then they pass it between themselves so they can refine their arguments. They can refine, you know, whoever's in dissent, who's ever in the majority. They work through who's going to be in what. There's a negotiation is probably not the right word, but for something that everybody can get their heads around. They refine these opinions down based off what each other's writing. That's why a draft leak was so damaging because they got to trust each other. Like, all right, here's how I'm going to disagree with you. Scalia was famous for this. He would actually send his over as early as possible. Like, here's what I'm saying, you know, write, write what you're going to dissent off what I already wrote. There's a, there's not just a camaraderie there, but there's an important part of the legal process there. And that's what gets damaged by this. Yes, absolutely. I mean, like, and the duty of the court in writing these opinions is partially to explain to the public how exactly we, we arrived here, um, what our rationale is. And if you notice the final version of the, the Dobbs opinion um, versus the one that was leaked, the only difference is really we're responding to the dissenting and concurring opinions. The opinion itself and the number of those who were um, in agreement with it, all of that remained the same. It, it kind of, I, I think it, as soon as it leaked, my first thought was, well, this is probably locked in at this point. Um, and I don't think that was necessarily their motive, but I couldn't see the possibility of someone flipping because they would forever be known as that um, justice who flipped in Dobbs. Yeah, I thought the same thing. And then the other thing I thought was, and I don't want to do conspiracy theories here, but like it had to be one of the, and there's different levels of clerks, the clerks that would have access to a draft copy. That's a very small number of people and the justices. The two concerns is, was it a clerk or was it a justice? It almost seems like it's incalculable that it would be a justice. But the way they've handled this, they mm -hmm. kind of left the door open for the conspiracy folks to think this might have been a justice. I don't want to speculate on it, but if it was a justice, that's that's really not good. I mean, I think there's virtually no chance it was one of the justices. Um, none from um, either side of this case would do this. I think they, there's too much respect for the institution amongst the justices. And also thinking about this too, just from a purely practical perspective, they're appointed to the court for life. They have to work with their colleagues as long as they're there. Um, it would, from a purely practical standpoint, I mean, obviously other than just being wrong, it would make no sense to do this nor would they be able to persuade their colleagues to go one way or the other by doing that. Um, there's just absolutely no good motive there. Yeah. Ashley Baker joining us. Okay. That's that story. What's coming up in the Supreme Court here? You just went through the timeline a little bit. Usually we get the big announcements, you know, May, June, July kind of time period. What's the stuff folks should be watching out for this spring that the court's going to be watching in the headlines as they follow along? Well, there are quite a few big cases that will be in the headlines. The court recently has not um, been trying, I mean, Dobbs' evidence of this, the fact that they've even granted it. They're, they're granting cases now that um, aren't as non-controversial, aren't as necessarily incrementalist as the court did in years past, which I think is a is a good thing um, to, to reevaluate some of these larger issues. Uh, there's a large case involving affirmative action and college admissions that will be coming up. Um, that was certain to make headlines um, about whether or not um, racial preferencing is discriminatory and also if it's discriminatory against um, particularly Asian students in this case. Um, there are some administrative law opinions, um, as always. There's a pair of cases, Axon versus FTC and um, 
SEC versus Cochran that um, that will decide some issues of federal jurisdiction or whether constitutional claims need to be heard like in house, like in that agency, um, or if that can go if that needs to go to federal court as it would in pretty much any other case. Um, that's a, a narrow and kind of wonky case, but I think it's pretty significant in terms of where the court's going um, in, in administrative law. There's a copyright case as well uh, that involves the Andy Warhol Foundation that the court's going to kind of explore what is fair use, what is not fair use when it comes to reproducing certain images in which he did not have a license currently to do so. Andy Warhol still causing trouble in the year of our Lord, 2023. <laughs> uh, Ashley Baker joining us. Let, let's one more thing about this Supreme Court though. People do, look, it's a narrative. I don't like it because I don't like to waste my time on things that are a waste of my time. There's this whole narrative in the news media about the legitimacy of the Supreme Court. Well, the, the Supreme Court, <laughs> I understand the terminology of legitimacy, but the problem is legitimacy is in the eye of the beholder, and these people have lifetime appointments, so it really doesn't matter whether you think they're legitimate or not. However, having said that, I wonder if this is one of those things where it's just people are more aware of how it works in the inner workings and they're applying it through the polarized political filter. I think that's more of the story. People are viewing the court because the court, you know, it comes and goes. It gets liberal. It gets more conservative. It'll swing back more liberal at some point. These things go in cycles. I think people's awareness of it is just higher. And with social media, people like to use it for their own means. I think it's how we're viewing the court as the real story here more so than the court itself. Is that a fair way do you think you put it? I think so too. I, I mean, the bigger problem here is that people view the courts as making policy and when that policy has kind of gone their way for many years and, and now it's suddenly not, you, you see this huge outcry when really the outcome and job just means that you know, this decision is not the job of the Supreme Court. We return this to the legislature, to those who are represented by the people, those who are the you know, elected representatives that are closest. So it's not, you know, it's that they gave away power. You'll notice you don't see anyone really making any strong arguments for why Roe should have been upheld. It's more of, you know, why not to overturn Roe. And if, at the end of the day, I think Alito did a really fantastic job in his opinion. I think that's one thing that's a little bit underappreciated just because of all the discussion of, uh, around the leak is how great of a job Justice Alito did and just kind of laying out several reasons of what to, you know, kind of look towards and deciding whether or not a precedent should be overturned. And at the end of the day, he says, um, look, Roe held that there's an abortion, right? Supposedly somewhere in the first or fourth or the ninth or 14th amendments. But, you know, where is it? Um, they can't pinpoint a certain those who are in favor of Roe can't pinpoint exactly necessarily where that is. Um, and things kind of with Casey and other precedents just kind of evolve from there. So if it's not in the Constitution, then it's up to the elected representatives to decide. Right. Ashley Baker joining us now. Of course, our progressive friends and those that support abortion rights are going to disagree with Alito, usually pretty loudly. Here's the thing. This is all these state laws that were enacted. Some had trigger laws. Some went back to the legislator after this happened. There's going to be this is not the end of the abortion debate. This is the middle of the beginning of the end of the beginning. Right. We're going to see more court cases in the future with all these new state laws coming and all this. How long a period do you think it is before the Supreme Court takes up abortion again? Three years, five years? Will it be the next court after the Roberts court? At some point, we're going to go through this again. What do you think the time frame is going to be? 
Well, I don't, I don't think it would be the context of Roe specific. I mean, Roe, that was one of the good things and from my perspective and Roe being directly overturned and not just kind of left hanging, um, such as the court has done and and certain First Amendment cases, for example, and, and not fully overturning something. I mean, this is one of the first times um, in, you know, in 200 years almost that the Supreme Court has kind of relinquished power to the legislatures. So any case that involves, you know, those state laws might, you know, come in a different a different form, um, whether that's in the realm of administrative law and co or commerce or, or something kind of more specific to that, but, you know, whether or not there's a constitutional right to an abortion, that issue has been pretty well settled now. Ashley Baker. Okay, this was heavy stuff. Let's have a little bit of fun. One of the internet, especially Twitter and Facebook's favorite things and favorite conspiracy theories is the marshal of the Supreme Court and what they do and don't do. One little spray of sunlight in this Dobbs thing. We actually had a legitimate sighting of the marshal of the Supreme Court and what they actually do. So break the meme down and the conspiracy theory down for what does the marshal of the Supreme Court actually do since we actually got to see them do their job here? Well, if you look at the the process involving the investigation, I, I don't know how the more I think that kind of started as a little bit of a joke because it is called Marshall the Supreme Court. It, it sounds, um, you know, you can imagine someone and what they what they might be wearing and see, like it's a you know 18th century sort of um, depiction. But you know, there in, in terms of the processes um, involving you know the security of the court itself of the you know premises of the justices, um, they run that whole operation sort of. Yeah, I think people think it's like Black Rod at the opening of Parliament in UK. They got the big fancy hat and a big stick and they bang on the door. And it, yeah, no, that's no, not no. what it is. <laughs> All right. A little bit of, look, even the Supreme Court's got to have some fun once in a while, right? Uh, Ashley Baker, she's with the Committee for Justice. She also does some antitrust stuff. We're going to have her back to talk about that. But my friend, until we get you on her tell again, let folks know where they can find you, how they can follow you and keep up with what you're doing until we talk to you again. Sure. And thanks again for having me. So you can find our website is committeeforjustice.org or you can find me on Twitter. Um, my Twitter handle is and Ashley says, and you can find me there under Ashley Baker. We will do it. We're going to link to all this stuff. We'll link to the various things she has. I'm also going to link to that direct report. Like we just said, read it yourself, short document. It's short. It's only about two pages and the Chertoff stuff's about another six pages. Read it for yourself. Ashley Baker, really appreciate the time. We'll do it again soon, my friend. Thank you. Let's end on a piece of history that is kind of a little bit morbid, but really fascinating. Scientific America has this story. The skeleton of a person who lived 31,000 years ago, allegedly, bears hallmarks of the deliberate removal of their lower left leg, the earliest known evidence of a surgical amputation. Discovery on the island of Borneo. The remains predate the previous oldest known case of limb amputation by more than 20,000 years. And in the case of the individual survived for several years after the surgery, the finding published on September the 7th in nature suggests that some ancient peoples were proficient nurses and performed sophisticated medical procedures much earlier than scientists had thought. Archaeologists once described Southeast Asia as, quote, a cultural backwater, said study co-author India Dykes Hall, an archaeologist at the University of Western Australia in Perth. There's always been this untrue trope 
that not a lot happened there, but the discovery challenges this idea, revealing that people living in Borneo thousands of years had some highly skilled medicine. It's pushing forth the right idea that this is an incredibly complex area, adds Docks Hall. The researchers found that the remains in a limestone cave in the eastern side of the Indonesian part of Borneo, they uncovered an ancient grave containing a human skeleton that was complete except for the left foot. And we were all like, where is it? It wasn't there. Radiocarbon data of the charcoal found in the layers above helped date it. The age of at death was estimated to be about 19 or 20 years old. The team could not determine the individual's sex, but their height was similar to that of a male individuals who have known in that time and place. They also used uranium and radiation in one of the buried individual's teeth to date it that way. But the interesting part was the lower third of the person's leg was missing, and the tibia fibia, the bones between the knee and the ankle, ended in a clean cut. This level of precision indicates the limb was not lost in an accident or an animal attack. The bones lacked the type of marks typically left by an infection, suggesting the wound had been clean and protected from contamination. Furthermore, the small size of the left tibia and fibula compared to the right ones after the healing of the bone shows that the amputation occurred during childhood and at least six to nine years before the person's natural death. Quote, the probability of this happening by accident was so infinitely small that it had to be some sort of a controlled environment, said the study's co-author, Melandra Locke, a bioarchaeologist at the University of Sydney. It's an incredible discovery, um, they say. Uh, she adds that the survival of the individual in Borneo indicates caregiving by the community and medical skills that a few people possess even to this day. This proof of early human habitation in Borneo is especially important for Indonesian archaeologists, says the study's co-author. Uh, I'm not going to try to pronounce that one. I'm sorry, but uh, Adi Agus is the first two names. We'll take a stab at that. In archaeology at the National Resource and Innovation Agency in Jakarta, he hopes the study will help the UN cultural organization designate the region as a World Heritage Site. Archaeology used to be a field where, in most cases, Western Europeans would go to a place and steal their knowledge. In the last 10 to 15 years, things have been changing because the field is now recognized of local workers, like in places like Borneo and discoveries like that. We are getting much better results. And that's a direct quote. Fascinating stuff. People are people and somebody had some real in-depth medical knowledge. Of course, one thing we don't know is what kind of anesthesia they used. Not sure how they made the poor guy hold still for this, but God bless him. Interesting stuff and an interesting note to end on. That'll do it for Herd Tell today. Please make sure you're subscribing all the podcast platforms, iTunes, Spotify, or however you're listening. Even in India, we were talking to India earlier. We have subscribers from India on India podcast platforms. So if you can get us there, you can get us anywhere. Happy to have you along, but make sure you subscribe. It's a good way for us to keep track of how you're getting your Hertel program. If you're watching on the YouTube channel, make sure you subscribe there as well. There is special content for both those platforms twice on Sunday as a podcast only. That's a review of the entire week's interviews all in one stop shopping and one long form podcast. All those interviews put together. YouTube channel has some breakouts. They have playlists. Uh, all the good talks are on there. We have some of the specific segments that we did of commentary that folks have asked for are on there. The old uh, heard tell the long form podcast. There's 46 of those topic specific. You want to make sure you subscribe to the YouTube channel so you don't miss any of that. Now, till we talk to you again, though, wherever you and yours are across the street or around the world, we hope you're well. We hope you're well fed. We can't wait to talk to you again for more Herd Tell. All the music on Herd Tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com.
You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you.